It was a time of craziness. A time of wearing face masks. A time of self-quarantine. A time of riots and protests. A time of reevaluating life's greatest priorities. A time of looking at hard, ugly truths. A time of prejudice. A time of tribalism. A time of confirmation bias. A time of erupting frustrations. A time of uncertainty. A time of massive change. And in this time of craziness, a few rowdy infants dared to ask, is there any justice at all in this world? Is there anything at all to this thing called karma? I'm Rank McBadden, Faith Detective, and this is your next installment of Infants on Thrones. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. Philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. After your faith has let you down. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 637, An Insatiable Need for Justice and the Meandering Search for Karma, Part 4. So let's quickly recap where we've come up to this point. This all started with Tom asking the question, I'm wondering if, if you subscribe to any form of karma whatsoever. So we explored what Hindu culture has said about the nature of reality and the idea that karma means action. Thank you, Andrew Ainsworth, for that episode. We explored the idea that all action has an opposite and equal reaction, a balancing of the cosmic scales, if you will, in a universe of interconnection greater than we typically acknowledge or understand. Thank you, Alan Watts. I'm not a guru. We scratched the surface of reincarnation and continued existence after death, which brought with it an interesting variety of responses from many of you listeners, some who believe in the possibility of near-death experiences, and others who do not, at all. And I'll address those listener responses another time, but I don't really want to derail this thing with near-death experience and all that stuff, because it's clear that, for Tom at least, and for many of you listeners as well, the idea of justice coming in some distant time or place that we really have no direct evidence for just isn't very helpful at all. So for the next three episodes in this series, we're going to take a different approach. We're going to spend some time with the delightfully inspiring Christy Johnson. Now you're going to see all my <laughs> jokes I've written behind me. And ask the question, can any kind of justice be found in the life of a victim of sexual abuse? So consider this a trigger warning for those of you who have asked me to provide trigger warnings because for the next three episodes, we will be talking with a woman who experienced some of the most horrific things a human could ever possibly experience at the hand of her own father. And when she sought justice from the priesthood leaders of the church that taught her that she was a child of God, that God created a plan of happiness for each of us, that families can be together forever, those leaders protected the wrong person. Where is the justice in that? Spoiler alert. What I wanted them to get from the film is that you can work through it. The message now is like you can face 
this things that have happened to you and you can create a different life for yourself look for the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone so to re-familiarize ourselves with Christy and her story, today you're going to hear the first interview that Tom and I did with her after the release of her documentary last year. Her documentary is called No Crime and Sin. But before we get to that, let's turn to some listener feedback. And I want to encourage those of you listening to reach out if you have something that you'd like to contribute. Either write an email or record your own voice and send it to infantsonthrones at gmail.com like this next guy did. His name is Michael. Michael. Michael Bluth. We got a basket full of father-son fun here. Good. What's Kama Sutra oil? Maybe it's not for, for us. No, not that Michael Bluth. But seriously, his name is actually Michael Bluth. And now the story of a Mormon family who lost their faith and the one son who had no choice but to keep them all together. It's remarkable development. Yeah, I know, right? Take it away, Michael. What's going on, you guys? I am just listening to the Karma series, and I just couldn't help but think that it's not just tangentially related to the problem of evil. I think it's directly related. It's this incongruence in the amount of suffering and pain that good people, really good people, experience children innocent children you know the lot the uh, stat that sam harris always cites you know nine million children under the age of five die of bad water every year nine million you know you know you can cite the holocaust you can start you can cite the oppression of the uyghurs in china and a million of them in concentration like camps you can cite north korea i mean just needless suffering on such a massive scale where is their karma where is their their just desserts for the people that both inflict that pain but karma on the other side of people that have just gotten you know the short end of the stick to put it lightly in life i mean we talk about winning the universal lottery being born in america being white with all its privileges and being born into a time and place where Everything is quite convenient and comfortable. There is no inherent justice in the universe. It's not programmed in for whatever reason. But at the same time, it's biologically programmed into us to have a sense of fairness and justice. And I don't think there's an answer for that outside of basic biology. Maybe it goes into you know, the herd thesis, survival of the herd is best for the species. So we've evolved to try and be fair, to treat one another's wounds, to lift one another up because there's strength in numbers. And we're going to progress as a species if we can manage to take care of one another to some degree. And there's fairness in part of that. I think Tom is going to continue to drive himself crazy, chasing justice in a universe that's completely devoid of it. I don't think that karma is just. There is way too much injustice for too many people. And there's more of it on the side of good people 
just having shit outcomes in life. Whether that be disease, dying early, losing people really close to them that they love. I mean, just how many times have you heard of just salt, someone salt of the earth type of person loses someone tragically and then they lose somebody else tragically or they lose a couple kids and you're just like, where is the rhyme or reason to this? Where is the justice in this? And I think you kind of have to just let go of it because you'll continue to drive yourself crazy looking for something that's not there. I don't know. Those are just my thoughts. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for recording that and sending it in. Now, you know that uh, I, I responded to your email and we had some more exchanges and you sent me something else that I'll be using in a future episode. But, but I do want to highlight a few things that you said because I think they're relevant to this conversation that we're going to have with Christy today. You talked about the problem of evil. Well, that's going to come up uh, maybe three episodes from now in something that we discussed, Tom and Christy and I. But you define this as needless suffering on a massive scale, and you ask, where is the justice on both sides of it? Where is, where is it for the abuser gets his, gets punished, or some kind of correction for the abuse? And where does the abused get the wrongs righted on their end. Now, I don't think that we're going to answer the first question of how do you punish the people that are doing these things. But as far as the victims, I think Christie's got a really interesting perspective on that side of it. Now, Michael, you say there's no inherent justice in the universe. And my questions to you is what does inherent mean? And, and what do you mean by justice? And then you talked about it's just not programmed in. Who, who are the programmers? And what is the program? You say that we live in a universe that is completely devoid of justice. That's, that's quite absolute, <laughs> stark, completely devoid of justice. But then you acknowledge that there's more injustice in the fact of good people having shit outcomes than what would the opposite of that be? What would the justice be? Would it be good people having good outcomes, not shit outcomes? So do you think that there's there's more instances where good people have shit outcomes than good people have good outcomes or non-shit outcomes? I'm, I'm a little confused by that. And the examples you give of disease and people dying and having tragic losses, and you ask, where's the rhyme or reason to it? Where is the justice? What is the justice of that? You know, there's, there's natural disasters. I remember this book. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go back and, and go back into this. I might. But it was a Neil A. Maxwell book that I read when I was a teenager called All These Things Shall Give the Experience. I think we did a, a panel discussion on it once. I'll see if I can dig that up. It's about the problem of evil. It's kind of the, a, a Mormon apostle's take on the problem of, of evil. But he divides things into these categories of natural things that happen and then things that happen as a result of man's inhumanity to, to man. I think that's what you're talking about here. But I, I agree, I think that we'll drive ourselves crazy looking for something that's not there. But I don't know that the world is completely devoid of justice. I don't know that it's completely devoid of hope. I don't know that it's completely devoid of love and karma that rights wrongs. And I think that what you're going to hear from Christy today is somebody who's been through the ringer and has come out the other side saying, you know what, I, I've learned some things, I'm going to take control of my life. And she's still working through it. I mean, this <laughs> I want to be careful with how I'm saying this. And really, I should just shut up and uh, let her say 
herself. So let's go to the interview now. Thank you once again, Michael. And again, listeners, if there's anybody else that wants to add to this, please do send an email to infantsonthrones at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And now, Christy Johnson. All I remember dad saying was, yeah, just don't tell your mom. He was a liar the whole time. It started at the age of four. Four? Like what? Hi, Joe. Hi, baby. I love you. Here, give her kisses. We represented something negative for the family. To this day, Kevin never told his sons. We didn't get to choose this. It happened to us. But I'll be damn sure we're going to do something about it. We do hold the church personally responsible. They made sure that my father never served time. They made sure my mother felt like a victim and was a victim. The surest path to preventing and healing abuse is through the application of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Let God be the judge. You cannot do it as well as he can. Sexual predators are more protected in the Mormon church than innocent, children and vulnerable adults. When something happens in your LDS community, you don't go to the police. It's a church matter. You've had a great life, Dad. We haven't. I've had to live my whole life without your love. I don't care anymore. It's not important. Because you're not important. I'm angry for justice. I want to see justice done. on thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. After your faith has let you down. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and what you just heard in that introduction was the trailer to the documentary No Crime in Sin, which tells the story of Christie's abuse at the hands of her father how the Mormon church swept it all under the rug, and how Christy and two of her siblings confronted their father 30 years after the fact, and what this has all meant for them in their lives today. No Crime in Sin is streaming now on Amazon Prime, and Christy is here with us today to tell Tom and I more about her story. Take it away, Christy. Do you figure out what to do? Because I'm, you know, special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless you've got something Can you guys you see say, me now? Yes. Okay, cool. Great. I look like, you know, whatever. Now you're going to see all my <laughs> jokes I've written behind me. <laughs> all the jokes. Oh, is that what nice. That is? Yeah, it's like I do a lot of comedy so anymore. So. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. My son's sitting here watching an adulterous dinosaur and nobody's reacting to it. Yeah, I saw that at the, at the tail end of your documentary. I talked about that. How's that going? It's going pretty good. I've done a lot of um, open mics, and then I've performed in different states, so it's kind of great. I'll be in Los Angeles next month, or in a couple of weeks, actually. It's got to be fun. I mean, I'm sure you're it enjoying is. the process. Oh, my God. When people laugh, it's even better, and it's jokes that you've done. Yeah. And people are, like, rolling. You're like, all right, this feels great. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. exciting. So where would you like to start, Christy? Oh, gosh. Um, how about – happy- I got questions like one yeah. since the movie's been out and I know there was, I think there was a premiere that you guys did up in Salt Lake. 
June 20th. June 20th. So I'm curious if you've had any direct fan interaction, I guess, or people viewer interaction that have asked you questions either after the fact or emails or phone calls. I'm curious if you've interacted that way. Um, mostly the interactions. I mean, at the premiere, we did a Q&A up on stage, you know, where people from the audience could send in their question through Twitter. Um, so we took a lot of questions there uh, with the filmmakers and myself and my brother um, and our attorney. And then, um, but I, I think mostly people have reached out through social media, like on Facebook or Messenger or Instagram. And that's where we're getting um, a lot of feedback from people. And they do ask me a lot of questions. I was really shocked. Uh, once it came out on Amazon, the first people to contact me on Facebook were people I had grown up with in the Westminster First Ward in Westminster, California. Oh, wow. And I was really shocked of the tremendous support from Mormons and non-Mormons. I've only had one negative comment. Were some, were some of those people that reached out to you, did they know your family and your father and that whole scenario? Wow. Well, they knew, they knew of our family. They had heard something had happened. A lot of people never knew the truth of everything. Mm -hmm. They'd only heard a lot of rumors. Um, so, you know, so this, these are people that I grew up with and had, you know, was in the youth program within the church. Wild. Yeah. So, so, so I, I, I think I'd like to do a recap just of your story of, of what happened to kind of take that because there, there were things that I didn't quite understand from the, from the documentary. Like it seemed like, it, so, so it was you and it was Kathy and then your brother, Kim. Um, and, but were there, did you have other sisters that were also victims of your father? Yeah. And because they didn't want to be involved in the filming of it, we yeah. had to respect that. And so that's why we kept pictures, names, everything out to respect them. Yeah. yeah. There, there are times where you talked about sisters and that. Okay. Yeah. And, and I just want to say from the start, like, I'm really nervous having this conversation oh, with you because really? I, yeah, because, <laughs> because oh. it's such a, It's, it's just such a raw issue, you know, this experience that you're talking about and that you put out for the whole world to express their opinion at, you know, and, yeah. and um, I have, well, I didn't expect to get this emotional. I, I have um, women in, in my life who I want to be respectful of and not reveal who they are, exactly what their relationship is to me, but there are several who have had similar experiences. And it's, um, so I, so I, I'm, I'm nervous in the sense that I don't want to say anything wrong. <laughs> you know, I, oh, I, you're so kind. I just, first of all, you can't say anything wrong. Okay. Um, I've Try been me. through enough counseling. I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been doing this, uh, you know, once, when my mother passed away in 2015 and um, four of her six children were with her when she passed and that whole thing became a very spiritual experience for us. It mm. was very hard to witness. Uh, we learned a lot of things from her about three days before she passed. She came clean about a lot of things and talk about upsetting, yeah. um, you know, and 
that was a turning point for me because I had a decision to make at that point to either be really, I mean, I had to honor my anger, of course, right. you know, but there was a person in front of me that was also passing away. And uh, when I told my, you know, my two brothers and my sister what my mother had revealed, of how long she had known what had been going on, um, it was it was very upsetting. And I had a very long prayer with God mm -hmm. and asked him if I could look at my mother as just a human being instead of my mother. Um, and I, you know, us kids were all kind of blessed with that. And we just kept loving on her and, you know, we let her know that she was loved and respected. And uh, once she passed away, uh, I kind of buried a little bit with that. What was interesting is, you know, my mother stayed devoted, especially in her older years, to the church. And they weren't very kind to her. And she kept a, a suitcase by the door of her temple clothing because she wanted to be dressed in that um, at her burial. Mm -hmm. And on the day that was scheduled for her best friend, who was a member of the church, to come in and dress her, she all of a sudden couldn't. The best friend and couldn't. They, she it. couldn't. Yeah. yeah. And so we were like, what are we going to do? You know? Um, and so my two brothers and my sister and I, we went into the morgue and they brought my mom's body out and we dressed her in her temple clothing to show her how much, you know, her last request. And we honored her that way yeah. because she believed it. Right. And, you know, whether we believed it or we didn't, we did to honor her as our mother. Yeah. And um, that's why when people, you know, if they make any comments like, oh, you're anti or you're this or you're that, I'm like, hmm no i'm i have an opinion and i've been through a lot but i did we did take that moment to honor her wishes that's really beautiful that is nice i mean you're and that's a really good point i, I love you sharing your story about your mom because in the documentary your mom's sort of absent from yeah and i, I assume that's intentional yeah. because obviously as I, as i'm watching it i had you know a lot of questions going through my mind like what I wonder what the mom was going through or thinking or observing and all that stuff. Yeah. My mom really had a tough time when we were little kids. My dad was horrible to her. So he was abusing her mentally, physically, um, emotionally. And my mother did go to the church several times uh, when we were little. And cause she had walked in on one of the times he was. Abusing. Oh, no kidding. Oh, wow. So she knew early on uh, what was going on. Jeez. And so she went to a bishop. And when my dad was teaching at Brigham Young University, she went to the head of the personnel there and reported what he was doing. She reached out to several people in the church and nobody would help her. They just would move us around or hmm. give him new assignments or they finally sent us out to California. Did she ever reach out to any form of law enforcement at all? My mom did not, but in 1986, uh, my sisters and I uh, went down to the police after I got off my mission, and something happened there while I was home for my mission that we can't talk about that involves the other sister. Mm. Some information was revealed that was extremely disturbing. Yeah. Mm. And so we reported again to the stake president, and my mom went down there with us. And when they weren't going to do anything, um, it just really snapped in me like, okay, I'm done with the church. We need to go down to law enforcement. And so we made uh, three separate police reports at that time. And um, so. 
Wow. And, and I, I don't know how important this is or not, but I just want to try to get it clear in my mind because I know that you grew up in, in California, but then at some point there was a move to Utah. And so how much of this was happening in California? How much was it in Utah? And it sounded like after this incident you're talking about in 1986 that your dad moved and he left and he just abandoned everyone for 30 years. You didn't see him or talk to him at all, but he went to Utah. So yeah. th those kinds of things I, I'm still kind of You, you need some on. sequencing, yeah. yeah. And I totally get that. So we started out in Utah. So we were, so my dad started working for the church education system. He got hired on. And back then, I think he had to be interviewed by a general authority. It was that mm -hmm. vital. And so he started out teaching seminary in Ogden, Utah. And then um, the abuse started when I was six. And um, there were other siblings that were being sexually abused as well by my dad. And he also physically beat us really severely. Wow. So it happened in Ogden. And the first report that went to the bishop that my mother reported to, uh, right after my mom reported to that bishop, because he told her specifically not to report it to law enforcement. He said it would make the church look bad. My dad would be fired. Where would we, you know, get food? Just really kind of scared her. And, uh, but, you know, bottom line, she had a decision to make. She chose a decision that I would have never made to stay with him. Hmm. Um, but right after that, we got transferred to another home, out of, but still in Ogden. And so he was at another seminary building. And then it was reported again. Um, and I remember talking to a gentleman there and reporting it because my dad was also abusing me in the seminary building in his office. So no way it wasn't wow. just at home. It was actually on church property. And so, um, Holy cow. yeah, cause I would have to go after school. I think it was like kindergarten or first grade. I was required after school to walk to the seminary building. I would sit there as he taught, you know, the students and I would sit among them. I thought it was really cool. And then on occasion he would take me alone after everybody left into his office there would be some abuse there. How did you reconcile that with the things that he was saying and teaching about love and kindness and these, and then you're experiencing something so different. I mean, you, you, must, you must have found a way to deal with that somehow. Yeah, as an abuse victim, you do. And, you know, kids are just so incredible the way they deal with things. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's an interesting mindset, but, you know, there was a lot of disassociation or there was a lot of escaping during it. Although I would memorize the ceiling, you know, and there were certain things. And my dad would always say the same thing throughout the years of abusing us. Um, and it was, it's not real. This is not real you know, this isn't happening, you know, so it would be very, very confusing. Ooh. And so he had a way of, you know, um, yeah, he tried different things throughout the years. He just, it was bad. And so as soon as we reported him again in Ogden, all of a sudden he was transferred to Provo to teach at BYU. So that's an older crowd, right? It's not the mm -hmm. seminary kids anymore. And um, then he got put into the bishopric in Provo and uh, later I found out that that bishop who had him as a counselor, um, he was also abusing his daughter, who was the same age wow. as he was. So 
she plays a part in my life that got this whole thing started. Um, her name is Michelle, one of the most bravest people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, we were both in school together. We had no idea it was happening to each other. So um, after my mom went to Brigham Young University and she reported to my dad's bosses that what he was doing. Now, keep in mind, my mother was in a constant state of upset. And uh, there were a couple occasions where uh, my, when my parents were arguing really bad, my mom on two occasions, but one when I was seven, she went into the kitchen and got a butcher knife and put it up to her throat. Wow. And, you know, she was like, I'm going to kill myself. She went in the bathroom and, uh, you know, she was screaming and my dad just sat there on the couch like nothing was happening. And as a child, talk about being scared to death. Traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. So you have all that going on. So you have this woman who's fighting the church. You have this, you know, it was, it was crazy. Wow. And so when she went to BYU and reported to my dad's bosses, look, he's abusing my children. You need to intervene or do something. And at the time that she reported, Dallin H. Oaks was president of BYU. Now, I can't guarantee that he knew, but he's over the personnel. So how did he not know? Because right after that, all of a sudden, my dad was transferred out to the Institute program in California. So... So as far as the timeline goes, I mean, in the documentary, I think it stated that the abuse happened from 1969 to 1986. Is that about right? Right. That's when I got home from my mission. And then, wow. And so, and then he was excommunicated. I don't want to jump around too much because I no, do want to. Okay. Yeah. We turned him into the police and the church was very angry with us that we went to the police. I mean, we got ripped to shreds. Oh, wow. And, and, this, so, and this was while you were in Provo? No, this is when, after my mission when we were in California. Okay. All right. So we're already in California and that's where I was mostly raised through my youth years. And then that's where I left on my mission. Okay. And then I got back from my mission. We went and reported him to the police and then the church got very upset because my dad was on the high council and the stake president was very unhappy um, because he said, this is going to make the church look bad. How could you do right. this to the church? <laughs> so they were forced. Um, they were actually not going to even hold a court on my dad. And my older brother, Kevin, was like having a fit. And so my mother had a way of reaching the <laughs> prophet's office. And uh, so my brother got involved. And finally, we received a call from the prophet's office. Who was the prophet I believe at the it time? Was, I think Benson? it was Benson. Yeah. <laughs> And, and he told my mother that my dad would be excommunicated and he would be fired and from the church education system. And so, um, but w let me back up when that night, when we reported him to the police, this will tell you where my mom, my mom's mind was during this mm -hmm. time. So we were, the girls were down at the police station. We made all these reports. It took us well into the night. So we spent the night because my dad was at home with my mother. Okay. So we spent the night at our older brother's apartment and in the morning we called our mom and she said, you guys went to the police and we're like, well, how, how do you know? And she goes, because in the middle of the night, the Westminster police department called here and said, you know, is so-and-so your dad there? And uh, she was like, yeah, what do you need? And they were like, well, we need to pick him up for questioning. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. Our church is going to handle this. This is a church matter. Oh, wow. 
Uh, yeah. And the police said, ma'am, he's been accused of several felonies. Is he there? <laughs> him up? So wow. what my mom did is when she got off the phone with the stake president, or my mom called the stake president right after that when she <sighs> called the cops and told him what was happening. And he said, under no circumstances are you to let the police pick him up. And so he, along with my mom, hid my father out that night. Really? Um, in the world. So that's why my dad left. We found out later he moved down to the beach where his sister lived close by to the beach. And that's where he ended up hiding out for a while. And um, yeah, he was never questioned or brought in or nothing ever happened to him. And, and he left the state? Well, what he did is my mom divorced him. Okay. And then right after their divorce was final, he married one of his students that he had had in Institute. Mm -hmm. And um, she was older, so she wasn't like a young girl. Um, and then they stayed in California just a very short time, and then they took off for Lehigh, Utah. So wow. that's how he ended up in Lehigh, Utah, and we were left in California. But the day... Um, is that who he was still with when, when you had the confrontation and... Yeah, and she was actually in the basement, I guess, because okay. she had had Alzheimer's and mm -hmm. was like bedridden. Mm -hmm. We never saw her, um, okay. but she was very, com uh, she knew what he had done. Um, had he done it to her when she was a institute student? No, because she was older. She wasn't a young student okay but i don't i don't know she was very strange i'm gonna just say it because mm. i remember having several talks with her and she would bring in her grandchildren to stay there um her own daughter uh she had a 14 year old granddaughter and, and a little son that they brought in and was around my dad and so yeah so what i did is through the years i kept in contact with my dad to keep an eye on him mm. And that's, you know, that's when I called him one day and I heard children in the background and I said, dad, are those kids? And he said, yeah, my wife's a primary teacher and she brings the kids over, you know, primary class over and we have little parties here. And I was like, well, what the hell? Right. Right. And at the time they have my dad on the Lehigh High Council. Even They knew he molested children and they don't care. So they put him in this high position in the church. So I called the stake president right when I got off the phone with him. And I said, hey, you know, this is Christy Johnson. My dad's one of your high council members. Are you aware that he molested his kids? And he said, yes. I said, are you aware that he's having a primary class party with children right now as we speak? And he said, yes, I'm one of his neighbors. And I'm like, what the hell? And he said, Christy, I believe in your dad's repentance. Right. And I was like, oh, my God. So tell me why you think he's repented. Well, he reads the scriptures every day. He goes to the temple quite right. often. And I wow. said, well, he did that for the 12 years he, you know, was assaulting us. So mm. if that's what you're going off of. so. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, I know. So in the documentary, he gets excommunicated. And then he gets rebaptized like a year later. Yeah, it was very short. And That's now it incredible. all happened in California. So that happened. He was rebaptized before he even moved to Utah. That's mm. how quick that turnaround was. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I and can't then they put why it, didn't the police follow up on? I mean, like he was hiding out, but they couldn't find him and they're just they just gave up? Well, that's what's really sketchy about this whole Westminster Police Department. And we've tried to call them out several times on it because we have witnesses that saw the police reports. Yeah. Um, and so it was well known that we had reported. There were also police officers from our stake there. 
Um, mm -hmm. And so I don't want to call any of them out because maybe they did do their job and maybe they were told by the DA's office or whoever. But, you know, when our attorneys and everybody went down there years way earlier to get copies of all that stuff, they had no record of us. And oh. yeah, and social services had stepped in from the state and um, had opened up two separate cases and our names had completely disappeared from the social services for the state of California and they don't get rid of records. So they even searched them in Sacramento and then a uh, victim's witness through the courts paid for our counseling. The church didn't, the, the, the courts uh, people did and they have no record of us as well. And so I'm like, somebody had their hand in yeah. getting all of this completely wiped out. Wow. Why? It's yeah. really odd, yeah. Doesn't it sound far-fetched? No. I mean, thank God <laughs> my dad, like, confessed. I mean, it's just crazy. No, it, the church it, is crazy. It sounds like they, the church didn't want a black eye, and they, yeah, blotted out his sin for him. Yeah, and uh, it's so unfortunate, and they put all these kids at risk, you mm. know, and then for them, you know, they did put an annotation on his membership record, which said that he was a danger to children when they rebaptized him, mm -hmm. but even with that, they made him a high council member, you know, we've had somebody on social media that's reached out and said, Christy, oh my God, I took a class from this wonderful man who taught stake presidents and bishops and gospel doctrine and was teaching and teaching institute people how to be institute teachers or whatever. And um, she said, when I saw your film, I was like, oh my God, that voice sounds really familiar. Oh my God, that's Brother Johnson. He's just older now because that was in 2003. So hmm. she was like, I can't believe it. I cannot believe that's your dad. Yeah. You know, this is this is what's interesting about whether it's your story, the documentary, or all of the all of the above, is I guess my anger is that what is it? It's it's the fact that he never got caught. You know, it's it's like the tragedy of what he was doing is is should be the focus and and the healing and on all that stuff. But the fact that it got swept under the rug like it did you know my anger is towards the law enforcement there but it's a lot of it's towards the church and whatever involvement they may have or did have in protecting this it, uh, i don't know man well it happens and, and that's what's so crazy is because there were so many leaders that knew what was going on mm -hmm. i mean i met with my bishop Actually, he called me in when I was 15 because my dad had beat me to a pulp. I mean, it was bad. And my mom had told the bishop, and my dad was one of his counselors, of course, at the time. And my mom had told the bishop, and so he called me in. He was like, you okay? And I'm like, mm-mm. And he's a, he said, well, um, your mom said you were going to tell me some other stuff that's going on. And I was like, oh, great. You know, here we go again another bishop and so I told him how my dad was coming in my room at night and what he was doing and his whole reaction was like come, Christy come on he's coming in your room at night are you sure you're not dreaming it and I was like really you know and I knew I knew this was just a waste of time wow. you know and they never I, I found out from my dad years later that that bishop told my dad to clean up his act 
And that was his talking to. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. <sighs> um, so in, in the, the, the 30 years from the time where your parents divorced and he kind of took off, and then when you confronted him that is shown in the documentary, you said that you kept in touch with him. What, what was that interaction like? And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start there. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting because there, you know, there was a lot of, not a lot, but I tried to be kind so I could get information because the moment you talk down to him, cause he's so egotistical, you know, the moment you do that, you lose it. So, you know, cause I, I understand the anger because I'm still very angry mm-hmm. about it. And I'm very angry at my dad. I'm still got a lot of anger towards my mom, you know, that I'm trying to deal with. Yeah. But that interaction with my dad is he has such an ego and he was so into the church, you know, and they were always protecting him. And so it was very strained. You know, I knew I was never going to, never going to get the truth. And that's what was really hard is because you'd catch him in lies. You know, when we sat and we met with him, mm-hmm. the first lie out of his mouth was that the, the year he started, you know, molesting us. How old was Christy when you first started to molest her? I think uh, it would have been in uh, 19... 77. You know, before mom died, she um, she told us a lot of things. So you're, you're claiming it was in Westminster, not in Ogden or Glendora or... You know, I don't think it was in Glendora. The first I can recall is in Westminster. What... What did she say about Ogden? The kids were just little mm-hmm. then. You know, so my brother's asking him, you know, when did you start molesting Christy? And he says 77. And it's like, you're off by like, you know, six years or whatever, because he started in 69. And he knows that he did. He's not feeble. He's brilliant. He has a PhD. I mean, this is he's not a feeble man. He may have a little bit of an essential tremor. But he's not weak. He's not mentally incapable. He he knows what's going on. Well, that's what's that's what's weird to me is when I hear you say that. I mean, in the documentary, he even seemed very, I don't know, forthcoming. Well, if, if you ask me questions, I'll, I'll answer anything you, you ask. Mm-hmm. You know, ad- admitting to what he did, which is. Was, took me off guard because you would automatically think that he would deny, deny, or deflect, deflect, or whatever it is, or victim blame. But he actually acknowledged and admitted to it, and I was like, whoa, okay. Dad, I'm going to give you a hug goodbye, okay? Okay. Take care of yourself, dude. I always loved you so much. I just love you. Love you so sorry. Take care of yourself, okay? Yes. Oh, Kathy. I'm so sorry. 
<laughs> yeah, it's kind of trippy because, yeah, when, you know, he didn't admit to all of it, um, but he did admit to some, which was enough, which was good mm-hmm. for us. And it gave me some validation because, you know, having to hear him say that. But the thing is, like, even in his church courts, he was very upfront about what he did. You was know, he, though? He I mean... was. I'll tell you, I know a little bit of something. Okay. When he, you know, the church, when they uh, go to rebaptize you, you have to have another court. Uh-huh. So these 12 high counselors or whatever get together at the stake. Well, it's what's interesting is I had an inside view. One of my bishops at the time, year like this is like a decade or so later, came up to me in church one day and he said, I, I need, I feel like I need to tell you something. And he said, you know, I was down at the steakhouse one night and I got pulled in because they were going to have a court to get your dad rebaptized and he said you know normally they're high council members but because I was a bishop they needed one more guy so they had me go into this court and he said you know as your dad stood there and admitted that he had molested you kids and had harmed you he said we asked him you know why did you do that and he said yeah they're asking him and you know what he said my dad said here's what he said the bishop goes Christy your dad said that he had to turn to his children because his wife could not meet his sexual. Oh my God. So I'm expecting as the Bishop's telling me this, right? Like I'm expecting him to go, can you believe this asshole? Right. So can I say asshole? Sorry. Yes. Can you believe this asshole? And so you can say fucking asshole. Okay. Fucking (laughs) asshole. Can you believe this fucking (laughs) asshole? No. So this Bishop is at church and he's telling me this. And, and so I'm looking at him and, and then he goes, Christy, it all made sense. That's why your dad did what he did. And we knew there wasn't a dry eye in the room. We knew that he repented. He had come clean. And I'm looking at him like, what the hell? And he goes, so we let him get rebaptized. Wow. And he goes, and I just feel like you needed to know that to help you in your healing. And I looked at him like, what the hell? Why weren't he these walked away? in the documentary, Christy? Well, there's so much. I, there's so much. There, it's huge. I know. I know. They, they, yeah. They, they did a great job. They made some decisions. It was started out huge, and then they brought it down to a certain size. And they're filmmakers, and they have their reasons for it. You know, I'm writing my memoirs right now. There's going to oh, be wow. a lot of information as well. Um, but you know, that's why I do interviews as well. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I, and and I'll I'll, wow. I'll tell you. I I had a really difficult reaction to the documentary because I sympathized with your dad's feebleness and I saw how angry all of you were. And I looked at that and I thought, there isn't anything that he could do that they would accept. And, but when I listened to you and I feel what it feels like to talk with you, I don't get that sense at all. So I'm going to blame it on the, the, Makers, <laughs> the way that they they cut it, um, but uh, yeah, it just all 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 of this detail, and especially just you sharing your experience, it really changes. Because I have no way of really stepping into your shoes and and being able to really know what you went through that brought you to these points that we got to see just a little bit of in this forty minute documentary that is so such an impactful thing for all of your lives 
Yeah, I think, you know, when my mom died, that was a, a game changer for us because my brother Kevin, my older brother Kevin and Kim and my sister Kathy and I, we all decided at that point we needed to go meet with dad. Mm -hmm. We had buried our mother. We had shown her all this love. We had stepped into that higher love, love with my mother in the end. So we thought, well, it's been this many years. Let's get a hold of dad, see if he's willing to have a sit down with us. And so we decided that's what we were going to do. And so our approach was out of love, but we also wanted answers because we had just buried a woman whose entire life was ruined because of this man. Yeah. Because mm. she never remarried. She was broken completely. Oh, man. And yeah. so, yeah, it's sad. And so then five months later, after we buried my mother, my brother Kevin died out of nowhere. Oh, this is a different brother than that was in the... Right. So okay. my older brother, Kevin, because at the beginning of the film, they show me showing pictures on the wall. Mm -hmm. So Kevin was the one who dedicated my mother's grave and asked God to restore our family mm -hmm. back to where we were before my dad had committed the crimes. Mm -hmm. So that was Kevin's prayer. And so we united four of us to go meet with my dad. And then Kevin suddenly passed away. And that was so devastating yeah. to us. And so at that point, we were like, all right, let's set the date and just do it. And that's why in the film, you see us holding Kevin's picture because he was originally going to be a part of that meeting with my dad. Oh, so that was wow. symbolic that Kevin was going to be there. Were you guys oh, one of those wow. Mormon families that everyone's first name started with a K? Yeah, my parents okay. did that. Wasn't that's that good. nice? Well, <laughs> so you can imagine, right Kevin, Ke um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so on on this line, like that—that's a tragedy that didn't get discussed in the movie. But, but I know your sister Kathy. Yeah, like, she wasn't even sick. I I I teared up. Like yeah. I I felt like what that was just yeah. a, such a left turn. It, it, like she has what was it a brain tumor? It, it wasn't yeah. She went unconscious about a year after. I think it was a year after that we are filming, um, she went unconscious. So she was taken by ambulance to the hospital oh, and man. they discovered that her entire brain was full of this material. So it wasn't even a tumor. It had gotten in everywhere oh, and uh, they tried chemo and radiation, severe stuff like hardcore for about six weeks. And then they said, it's not doing anything. Oh. And I remember sitting there cause they called the family meeting. So we're sitting there, me and Kim and with Kathy and, She's like, can you believe this? Because she used to work out and eat well. And, you know, I mean, this chick took care of herself, you know. And here I was, you know, I would have the big carbs, never work out. And she's like, I'm the youngest. Can you believe this is happening to me? And I'm like, oh, so it should be the older chubby sister, you know. So we started literally laughing Wait, write, write, that, write that on your whiteboard. <laughs> write that on your joke board. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but wow. I remember she just burst out laughing. And the doctors were looking at so I'm like, this is what we do, you know, just let us be. And so we just sat there and laughed and cried and, yeah. you know, it's but awful. she did live another year. It was amazing. They only gave her weeks, but her death was painful and horrible. And her, she swelled her head and she went blind mm. and paralyzed. And I, that's something I have to rectify with our creator because that was so unnecessary, mm. you know? So, so there's, there's still some things about that encounter with your dad okay. because um, your brother Kim convinced him to confess to the police. We're requesting that you contact the authorities and turn yourself in. 
for the crimes that you committed against Christy and Kathy. Could you tell them what it is and that I could, maybe they could come here or something? You want me to ask them to, to come down here? Well, it, to take a. If that's what's necessary. And you made the call right there. Hi, uh, my name is James Kim Johnson. I'm at the home of my father, uh, Melvin K. Johnson, who lives here in Lehigh, Utah. And he's just confessed to molesting my sisters. And he's asking for some officers to be dispatched to his home so that he can make a confession to them. Yeah, actually, my dad had already written letters of confession to mm -hmm. us in April. So but to turn himself in, I guess, was the... Well, yeah, we wanted him. Yeah, Kim was, you know, we literally thought that the laws had changed in Utah. What the law that it did change was that you could sue them civilly and mm -hmm. there was no statutes uh, or like 35 year statute or whatever. But we really thought that the statute had changed where he could be arrested still. So when Kim's asking him, like, we want you to turn yourself in and finally get some jail time in, you know, for what you did, you know, so we were sincerely asking that. And so when my dad was like, well, yeah, let's call him. We were like stunned. I mean, mm -hmm. you saw our faces, yeah. you know, and so, you know, um, so when he talked to the police, you know, when they came, he started just telling him, you know, this is what I did to my daughters. And they're like, you know, but he goes, and it was only at night, you know, uh -oh. and the officers were like, what the? <laughs> it was only at night. Who cares if the sun's up, which was right. a lie because it was during the day as well. But, and the seminary building, right? Yeah, yeah we're like, wow. what? So it was weird, you know, but he just tried to minimize it. But the cops still, they took the, you know, the reports. And then they pulled me out on the porch and they said, you know, we can't arrest him you know, because of the statute of limitations. And I was like, oh, and they said, so what's going to happen? And I said, well, I'm going to go in there and, you know, hug my dad for the last time in my life and say goodbye to him. And uh, he's like, well, is, you know, is he, is he safe? Is he going to hurt himself? I'm like, oh, he doesn't hurt himself. He's like, are you going to hurt him? And I'm like, I would have done it already. You know, I, <laughs> that's, that would have been done. And so I just told him, you know, look, we're fine. I, we're just going to hug him and leave, you know. And so that's when you see us in there hugging him because right. literally that was the last time I was ever going to see him. That, that seemed like it was harder for Kathy than the other two of you to, to do. Because Kathy was about, I think she was 13, I think, when he left, mm. you know, when there was that. He should have been in prison, but for her, you know, she was just still this little kid, and, you know, her abuse was just the week before, so it was still very fresh, you know. But when my dad left and went to go live with his sister, he had our electricity turned off. He, my mom went down to the bank, her mortgage check bounced. So she went down to the bank and my dad had closed out their account, taken all the money, opened himself up an account, had our electricity turned off. So my mom had to get it on in her name. So, I mean, this is not a repentant man. This is a caught man. Yeah. You know, he was pissed. Well, and that, that's kind of why I was asking you the question earlier about what your interaction had been like with him during that 30 years. Was there ever anything that indicated to you that he was repentant? And I'm 
thinking that no, there wasn't because it doesn't look well, like you feel like that at all. Well, you know what? There were there were times when it was like I'm so sorry, you know, yeah. and and I knew that he had confessed to the church, but it was confusing for me because you know the church puts so much pressure on you to forgive, and that is like drilled into your head, and it's very confusing. So you have this time where you're like, well, maybe he did. Maybe he's okay then. So is it me? Am I the bad person for carrying this burden? So God really won't forgive me. Is it my burden to carry? You know, so there was, I went through a lot of that, you know, while I was still a member, you know, and so there was weird times of being feeling like guilt and maybe I should forgive and maybe I should just be okay. And then, then there would be the anger, mm -hmm. you know, so the stages are all there, yeah. you know, so. It was confusing yeah. and being a member is confusing, especially mm. when they, they drill that into you where it's not like, no, maybe he should be in prison. I mean, they're easier to forgive when they're in prison, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've talked about forgiveness a lot over the, the course of this podcast and we still haven't <laughs> cracked that nut. Like, yeah. yeah. I'm like, well, we could always go by the law in the Bible. I mean, tie a millstone around their neck and throw them mm -hmm. off the pier or something, you know. So, so yeah, this this is probably the biggest question is justice. What does justice look like for you, Christy? I mean, because the documentary sort of plays it a little bit up to where there's the confrontation with your dad and ultimately, you know, your brother and your sister would like to see him in jail finally. It was almost like that's the form of justice that it seemed like you guys were seeking. And then that didn't exactly get fulfilled. But, you know, even throughout this whole process, I'm just curious, how would you, what does justice yeah. look like to you? Well, it's, it's kind of different. You know, I've been asked that before and it's been kind of hard because I'm thinking, you know, did we get justice? You know, and I don't know if you ever really can get full justice, especially for the crimes that were committed right. against my siblings and I. But, you know, it was interesting sitting across from my dad and we wanted to give him the opportunity to be arrested, you know, which we thought the laws would do. Um, but, you know, as I sat there, I realized, too, that the church did him a disservice because they didn't give him an opportunity to fully repent for what they believe repentance is. Because if you allow a pedophile or a, a child rapist to just be handled by a church court, they're never handled through the criminal justice system. So they don't have to have a wake-up call, you know, because that's part of the wake-up call is the repentance is that you're processed through this criminal justice system. But if you skip that step and the church covers for you, then you just have to work with the bishop. So it's very minimized and you don't realize the damage that you've done. So how can you ever fully repent of that if you don't come to full terms with that? So they get to skip out. And what I know of repentance, what I've had to do in my own life, is repentance actually ends up being this beautiful thing of this connection with your creator again, mm. where you're back, you know, feeling good and um, in this full relationship. So I think my dad never felt that. I don't think he ever got to feel that oneness with God. Um, I think he skipped out on a lot of steps. Did, did he make reparations or make attempts to reparations either with your mom or any of you kids? He never, uh, oh, uh, not the way that we finally got in the end, you know, because there were always promises. 
Mm. You know, because see, he got to walk away from it all. He literally walked away. And so, you know, he would, um, in the end, you know, I did sue him in federal court civilly, you know, and forced the issue. Mm-hmm. And that's where, because be like right after we left, because during the confrontation, one of the things that he said was like, you know, I have all this money, you know, I have, I've had homes, I've, you know, I have this home, you, and Kim was telling him, dad, you taught me the steps of repentance. One of them is restitution. Right. Sisters have had nothing. Yeah. You've had all this. Do you think it's fair? Right. And my dad's like, I don't think it's fair. I will do whatever they need. You know, I will pay for your counseling. I will help. I will give you my home. I will sell what I need. I will, whatever it is, I will make it up. And so when we left, we thought, okay, well, at least he'll help us. And so we kind of just waited for that to happen and it didn't. And so I reached out to him in a letter and said, you know, can you help me with my co-pays or can you you know you said you would help us and he's like oh I have nothing I I don't know you know I can't help you it's too bad we're in the same situation I'm like what the hell happened so we did some research and that's when we found out that shortly thereafter we found online his property records and it showed that the next day after we had left his house that his neighbor and him had a paper notarized, starting the process for him to move his assets into her name. Everything. So that he could say he had nothing. So that created some anger. That jerk. He was a liar the whole time. That's not a repentant man. So for now, I mean, I I have no respect for him at all, none whatsoever. And I'm angry, but I am angry now for justice. I want to see justice done. That was it for me. So all his assets go to this lady, um, everything. And it started the day after we left. So that was not a repentant man either. So do you see how... Yeah, and this is this is another beef I have with the editors of the of this documentary because I was so confused. At, you know, like you went from this interaction with this feeble man that you do kind of reconcile with, you know, like he seems repentant, you know, you get that feeling and then there's this thing that's explained where he signed his property away to his neighbor and you are so livid about that and you're like I knew he was a liar, he's always a liar, I can't trust him. I couldn't make the connections. I didn't know what that had to do with one of the other things, but you just explained it so perfectly. Like I get it. I get it now. I didn't, I didn't get it from watching the documentary. Okay. Yeah. There's a part in the film where it does show the deed transfers and all that kind of stuff. I, well, I saw and that. And then I'm in the background talking about yeah. how the next day we found out he signed everything over to her. Yeah. So I, that was like, <laughs> well, that's not repentance, you know? The, the, the part that I didn't get was where he, and, and it was probably in there, and I just was so overwhelmed by everything else going on that it wasn't really highlighted to me, that he had made a promise to you or a gesture to you that he had this money and he was going to help. And that that, that is a sign of 
penitence, that he wants to make these reparations. And as you said, your brother Kim called him out on that. You taught me the steps of repentance. I'll have to go back and watch it. Well, you don't, you don't hear my brother talk about that. That was in the raw footage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's about the person. Yeah. Because so, that, that sets the stage. Then I understand why him transferring the property and the deeds into the other person's name is like, he's really trying to avoid having to give you anything. And before, like, I thought, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Like, how, how do we know it was exactly this? But you knew. I mean, you knew. I just did from the documentary, so I'm blaming them again. Well, this is good feedback. <laughs> no, I, no, I appreciate yeah. that. No, it's good. I love complete transparency and being yeah. very honest. So. Yeah. So, so then you did sue him and you won that civil case. And Yeah, he actually mediated with us. He hired an attorney Okay. and uh, called my attorney and then he said, oh, you know, and we had just uh, buried Kathy. Mm. And uh, so all of a sudden he wanted to mediate instead of go through the federal, because we asked for a jury trial and everything. So, because he, he needs, you know, they need to come clean. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, but he mediated. And so I had a decision to make at that point. And, uh, you know, my brother Kim was there and our attorney and we had a really long talk. It took about seven hours in mediation to try to come to terms, but. And did that, that, was that, sorry. I was just gonna ask that lawsuit, was, was it you or were you also representing any of your other siblings? No, it had to be just me. Just Kathy, you. Yeah, Kathy was too, she was paralyzed. And mm. so she didn't know what was going on. She never even saw the film, mm. it's mm. so hard. She never got to see this. Go, you know, come to fruition. And so that was really hard too. And, you know? and so if I remember right, the, your dad's condition, part of the condition for the settlement was that you never mentioned his name again. Yeah. That's all he cared about. Literally. I was expecting, cause I was not going to sign a non-disclosure. Ever. Did he know that you guys were making a documentary about this? And uh, we asked him, yeah, Kim told him before we even met with our dad, because uh, we had set everything up. We said, look, we want to ask you a bunch of very serious questions. We want to talk about the abuse, you know, so we made sure that everything was set up. We weren't going to be tricky. We weren't going to be, you know, have a secret camera somewhere. We just weren't going to do that. So Kim had asked him ahead of time, look, you know, we want to document this. We have a film crew. Is it okay with you if they film why we're having this conversation with you? And my dad said, absolutely. So we were like, he's going to come clean. Are you kidding me? Wow. Mom died. Kevin died. This is another mirror. Like, you know, it's, it's going to be this heavy burden lifted, you know, it's going to be this come to Jesus time or, you know, and I think that's why our motives, you know, were out of love, but we also wanted to call him on the carpet, you know, and I think it's interesting that, you know, you said you saw a lot of anger in us, and it's interesting because I was shaking out of fear mm-hmm. sitting across from them. Him and Kathy had a hard exterior anyway because she had to grow up very hard like that. Mm-hmm. But Kathy, as you see, was so tender, you know. Um, yeah, when she spoke up, we were shocked because she had no plans of standing up mm-hmm. to my dad. But when she did, I was like, wow. Yeah. So for her to be able to be given an opportunity to face her you know, perp before she passed away. That that took a lot for her to do. So. Yeah, I think I think is in the documentary where Kathy sort of explained that she had more or less come to peace 
with the arrangement with her father. Cause I guess in a way she said that like, he's dead to me. He's been dead to me for a long time. He's kind of just this old guy now. And yeah. I don't know. And the thing is, you know, Kathy made reference of like, he doesn't know her name and she doesn't care that he doesn't know her name. Mm. My dad, when she was growing up, I don't know what hatred he had towards Kathy, but he would not call her by her name. He would That's refer weird. to her as she go get her he would never call her Kathy and it really bothered her growing up and he was very mean. You know, he played mind games and stuff. So when Kathy's making that comment, I don't even care if he knows my name, you know, I think that's why she went into it. Wow. Has, has, okay. So has this been a healing thing for you? I mean, how, how has the healing process been throughout the, the years and the decades, I guess. Well, it's been up and down. You know, I did most of my healing um, when my mom passed away. That was a big, you know, seeing her die and taking care of her around the clock like a child, you know, like it was kind of a reversed mother Hmm. role. And to see her in that condition, it really changes you. And if, you know, if people are able to take care of their parents in their dying days, I'll tell you, it's really hard physically and emotionally, but if you can do it, it's very rewarding especially when you hold their hand as they're leaving this life. Wow. It becomes this beautiful, I mean, it is, it really is. It's a beautiful uh, spiritual experience and it puts you on a whole different level where you learn what humanity is, especially when you've had a bad past with them Mm. and you're able to forgive them and let them know that so that when they leave this earth, they're leaving, you know, with peace in their heart. So, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I did, I did want to ask you, um, if, if I can, how, like, what, what is your belief like now of, uh, of an afterlife? You've mentioned creator several times and, you know, we know, we know what we were taught when we were growing up Mormon and when, when you leave, people can go all kinds of different directions. So I'm, I'm sure where, where you've gone and, and how does that help you, um, with your relationship with your mom, your dad, your siblings and all of this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it took me a while to leave the church. I didn't leave right away. I never left because of my dad. I actually needed the church to be true. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was what I was holding on to. And that's why I struggled with the whole forgiveness and that mm-hmm. guilt. Um, but, you know, I left because of the history of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I finally allowed myself to do some studying, but I would only study church published books. And only at night. Funny, and only at night. Right. <laughs> And it's funny because I would read Bruce R. McConkie's book. And it's funny because, you know, my dad, when he was a professor at BYU or taught at BYU, he shared an office with Joseph McConkie, Bruce R. McConkie's son. Mm. And so that was always, my dad was so proud of that, you know. Yeah. So, of course, that's what I would read. Was we, we know somebody who was one of uh, Joseph McConkie's missionaries, Mike Tannehill. He's oh. quite a... Uh, I anyway. love dropping names. I love dropping names. Oh, he just, <laughs> just, just that whole McConkey line. Of, uh, yeah, such an influence in the church. Yeah, very yeah. much so. But when I learned about the true history of the church, I was devastated. Mm. And I, you know, we all get that feeling like, is there a God? Like what? Like earth looks different. Yeah. When did that Everything. happen? When did that happen to you? Uh, I think I was in my 30s. I think I was in my thirties. Yeah. Yeah. But it just, um, it was, it was bad. I mean, I was devastated. Like we all are. 
yeah. you know, when you have to come to terms. And so, you know, I wrestled with it, you know, but what I did is I ended up having this really incredible spiritual experience. Um, I went with my sister, Kathy, she had already left the church and there was a, she was joined a Christian church, you know, and I had a really spiritual kind of one-on-one -on -one by myself with God and realized, wait a second, there is, there is somebody that's still there. So wait a second. So there is, there's still a God. I don't know what he, you know, is it Jesus? Is it God the Father? I didn't know how to define him. Mm -hmm. And that church, I could see a lot of the same kind of belief systems with the people, the cliques, the judgment. And I thought, oh, well, this doesn't feel good either, you know. So I went the Christian route. I went, you know, more nature stuff. I went, you know, I went through different different journeys and that's why I'm not really mad at people when they get yeah. like so angry with the church yeah. like in these different forums there's people that are stuck in the anger and I go let them get it out right. they, they're entitled to that yes, yes. Don't, don't judge them you know yeah. let them do what they have to do let them speak and say fuck this shit you know and yeah. I hate Joseph Smith he's a pedophile you know whatever yeah. they need to do to work through that that's what they're entitled to yeah. and that's why if that's your people then that's your people for a time right? Yeah. For me, I had to move forward from it. Yeah. Um, and so I've moved through different directions in my life. Where I've landed now is that I know that there is an afterlife. Um, I know that here's my personal belief. I believe that when we die, um, I believe that God is love, first of all. I don't think there's any religion in heaven. I don't think it has to do with anything about religion. I think that we're very much loved by the person that created us or being or whatever. Um, or energy field. Or energy field or tree <laughs> or flower yeah. that gave birth to our soul. No. Yeah. Um, click, click. Um, anyway. <laughs> so, but what I do believe is that there's a life review. Mm. I do think when you die and let's say you've been a really bad person, okay, and you haven't made restitution for it or come clean with it or done what you had to do to to be a better person to whatever you did to that person let's say you die and you've done horrible things i think that there is a life review i don't think there's a god standing in front of you mm -hmm. i do think there's a movie of your life and i think it pauses when you've hurt people and you haven't done anything to make good on it and mm -hmm. i think that person that you take on that person's persona for that moment and you feel what you did to them so that you have a full understanding of wow. the damage you did in this life. Yeah. And then I think you move on to the next scene, you mm. know, because I think you just, you just, I just think there's a kind of a, a life review. Yeah. You mm. have to know what you did. That's really cool. I, I, I recently watched the movie defending your life. It's a comedy with Al Brooks. Are you familiar with it? Huh. Oh, I think you'd enjoy it. It's okay. it, it, it. So he he dies and he goes to the the waiting station and he has to see different scenes from his life and he's defending his life. Let me tell you what's going on. When you're born into this universe, you're in it for a long, long time. You have many different lifetimes, and after each lifetime, there's an examining period which you're in now. You see. Every second of every lifetime is always recorded. And as each one ends, we sort of look at it. Look at a few of the days, examine it. And then if everybody agrees, you move forward. What do you mean move forward? I mean move forward, continue onward. The point of this whole thing is to keep getting smarter, to, to keep growing, to use as much of your brain as possible. For example, I use 48% of my brain. Do you know how much you use? 
47? <laughs> three. I'm sorry? Three. I use 3% of my brain? Yes, don't worry about it. Everybody on Earth uses 3% of their brain. 3 to 5%. That's why they're there. 3? 3%? 3%? You mean nobody on Earth uses more than that? When you use more than 5% of your brain, you don't want to be on Earth, believe me. Well, not that your takeout places aren't lovely, but there are many more exciting destinations for smarter people. Now, being from Earth as you are and using as little of your brain as you do, your life has pretty much been devoted to dealing with fear. It has? Well, everybody on Earth deals with fear. That's what little brains do. What are little brains? That's what we call you folks behind your back. <laughs> Who are you? Well, I'm just like you. I was on Earth a long time ago. But I advanced. I moved forward. I got over my fears, and I got smarter. Did you have friends whose stomachs hurt? Every one of them. It's fear. Fear is like a giant fog. It sits on your brain and blocks everything. Real feelings, true happiness, real joy. They can't get through that fog. But you lift it, and buddy, you're in for the ride of your life. God, my 3% is swimming. So he kind of has the experience that you're talking about oh, okay. here. okay. And it, it, it's, it's, you know, he, it's him and Meryl Streep and uh, Rip Torn. It's, it's a really, it, oh. it's, a, it's a cool movie. And then I, I was interested in where he got the ideas for that. And it, and it pointed to this book, What Dreams May Come, which was a movie with Robin Williams several years ago. And I remember seeing it and not being that impressed with it. But I got the audio book and I listened to it. And it, <laughs> it was cool for a couple of reasons. One, it was written by the father of the guy who was the co-creator of Bill and Ted's, who we oh interviewed on the podcast like two years ago. His name is... Uh, uh, Chris Matheson. Yeah, Chris Matheson. <laughs> so Richard Matheson, his father, is the one who wrote What Dreams May Come, and he also wrote wow. Lost in Time and you know some other uh, like really cool things. But it's a really interesting book that has a lot of these ideas that you're talking about in it. I think you'd enjoy it. And Oh, yeah, like, definitely. And, and, and like hearing him experience this afterlife as he's living his own experiences over again. And then as he's seeing what else is out there, what's next and the role that yeah. like fear and anger and love and all these different things play in it is it's uh, I, I, I loved uh, exploring those questions in my imagination through those books. So, yeah, that's really yeah. incredible. Cause yeah, I think my belief system too is about, I, I just really think that, we're here to really kind of help each other out and to learn from each other and to have this human experience, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think that your life review is like this everlasting hell. Yeah. I think, I think God loves us and he wants us back, you know, around him or whoever it is. And I just think that, you know, we're here for the experience, but I do believe we live on forever. I don't think we're, it's, yeah. that's it. Hmm. That's that's nice. Uh, just one, one last book reference. Hey, hey, are, are you familiar with the Course in Miracles? I've heard, heard of that. that. I've never knew what so it was it's a, about. It's it's another audio book that I've listened to recently called A Course in Miracles Made Easy uh, by a man named Alan Cohen, um, who I've I've met and started working with a little bit. Um, and that that's another one I would I would recommend. And okay. my 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 partner who I'm with right now. Um, she she didn't want to watch the documentary because of the 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 topic. It was just too triggering 
for her. And after I watched it, I, I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this because it's such a sensitive topic. And it seems to me like there's just so much anger here. And I like, I'm having this response to this anger and I don't know how I'm going to do it. And she said, remember what the Course in Miracles says that, that everything is love, like what you're saying right now, Christy. And so what people do is either an act of love or it's a call for love. So either way, it's about love. And I thought, well, whether I can view this documentary as an act of love or not, I can definitely see it as a call for love. And I can watch this and have this conversation with you and really love you yeah. and, and, and your experience and your story. And I, I just, I really feel that. And so I, I really appreciate that you reached out and that we were able to have this conversation. And I hope when your memoirs are complete, you know, you'll come back on and we can do Absolutely. this again. And yeah. um, I really want you to go down and grab Tom and Orem and get him <laughs> up on the stage and on an open mic. I should. I, you know, I know people. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if anything, I'd just like to watch your, your act. That'd be pretty fun. Okay, cool. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. This has been great. Yeah. And yeah. anything, any final words, Christy or Tom? No, I, well, well for me, you know, I want people to, you know, I wanted, I, I, what I wanted them to get from the film is that they can, you can work through it. The message now is like, you can face the, the things that have happened to you and you can create a different life for yourself. You know, when my sister was dying, I whispered into her ear and I told her that I would go forward and live a fearless life. Fears like a giant fog. That I would go forward and live a fearless life. But you lift it and buddy, you're in for the ride of your life. And so I was gonna go forward. That was my last wake up call. And I was gonna go forward and do what I wanted to do. I, do I wanna write a book? Do I wanna speak? Do I wanna do comedy? And people can do that. You can take your life back and your power back from what's happened to you and put it in its place, get the justice you can do, and then do whatever you can to move forward. And that's what I want people to get from all this. So thank you. Awesome. Really well said. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you very much, Christy. You're well, welcome. Stay in touch. Thank you. Thank yes. you. I'd love to. Thank all right. You. All right. Good night. Good night. All right. So what did you think about Christy's story? What about her attitude? Would it be fair to suggest that karma in this case is something that Christy has been creating for herself? That the way that she has righted the horrific wrongs done to her has been a shift in her own approach to life? Now we'll be talking with Christy again in the next two episodes about this very question and we'll get her reaction to Eben Alexander's near-death experience and what she thinks about this whole idea of justice and karma. It's a great discussion. I hope to see you there. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Keith. Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? This song was written by Pete Seeger, and the credit to it reads Pete Seeger and Ecclesiastes, because the poem is from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. It's called Turn, Turn, Turn. We're practicing our social distancing. Here's the very latest on where things stand. 
Roughly three out of four Americans now under police accountability as protesters march into a joint weekend of demonstrations. In Philadelphia, thousands took to the streets. There is a season and a time to every John, what is SGN? That's a good question. Three years now, I've been wondering why is there not a not just dedicated to good news? Well, it's directly waving my fix somewhere else. I reached out to all of you this week, asked how many from me, begging for some good news. And boy, did you deliver. I'm going to not just needless suffering on such a massive scale. There is a season turn, 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 and a time to every purpose under heaven. First, I want to change the question. Primero quiero cambiar la pregunta. There are no Time to build up a time to break down. We raise an alarm. Time to dance, a time to wake up and understand what's going on. Time to cast away stones. We teach a standard of moral conduct. There is no inherent justice in the universe. Wickedness never was some suppose that they were preset. You cannot overcome what they feel. Our inborn tendencies toward the impurity of natural not so. Why would our heavenly father a time of Well, I guess if that's what they believe, it's probably a good Because we're not a company. I'm not an idiot. I've read a couple of books and I've been to a pretty good school. And I have chosen to be a Christian. And I'd like to think that no respect for me would be a Christian. How has the healing process been throughout the years and the decades? I think most of my healing, when my mom passed away, that was a big, seeing her die and taking care of her around the clock, like a child, you know, like it was kind of a reverse mother. And to see her in that condition, it really changed. And we're able to take care of the parents in their dying days, I'll tell you, it's really hard physically and emotionally with the parents, especially when their hands are there, because one day on the red hill, I mean, it is. It really is. It's a beautiful spirit. It puts you on a whole different level. Will they be able to sit down together with the people of brothers? I have a dream. I say 
Did you hear the latest episode of Infants on Thrones? H7. Shh. Hit. Oh, yes, and I rather enjoyed it. R2. Miss, if only there was a way to listen to Infants episodes earlier and to gain access to interactive bonus content like video blog posts and other things. H9. Hit. Well... You could always join the Infant's Patreon page. A1? You just convinced me to sign up for Patreon. And also... You sang my battleship. A game you can play anywhere. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast and the effort that goes into creating it, please come support us on Patreon, where for as little as $1 per episode, capped at any amount of your choosing, you will have access to nearly 100 Patreon-only sharing time episodes that have not been released to the general public, or if you would prefer to express your gratitude with a one-time donation via Venmo or PayPal, check out the donate link on the website infantsonthrones.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.